Let us pray. God, here we are. Let it be with us according to your word. Amen. I want to introduce you to a friend of mine. You've probably seen her around. She sometimes darkens the doorstep of the church around the holidays. She's young. Not sure how young. She's uh, tough, self-possessed, wise, world-weary, in a way that makes you forget how young she is. But then sometimes uh, something will catch her off guard and uh, she'll crack a smile or the light will hit her just right and you'll remember she's really just a kid. You look into her eyes and you can tell she's seen some things, you know? She looks sad but not resigned, fierce but not cynical. And ooh, if she looks straight back at you, square in the eye, you feel like she is burning a hole right through your face. Some people think she's tender and mild. But those people do not know her all that well. <laughs> I mean, she is. She can be. But she is so much more than that. Her skin is this beautiful shade of brown with maybe a bit of red or yellow, like a sandstone, but uh, polished like an agate or iron. What's that Ali Primera lyric? Uh, Niños color de mi tierra, children the color of my land. Yeah, that's it. Her hair is dark and woolly. Her eyes flick around like anyone who's had to live life on the lookout. Her family is poor. I mean, dirt poor. The place where she's from was invaded by a foreign power long before she was born. She lived her whole life under occupation. Her movement restricted. Her body and labor not her own. Her family's meager income taxed nearly to non-existence. I mean, there's plenty of money around. Things are gentrifying. Massive building projects are underway all over the country. But somehow it never manages to trickle all the way down. People are pushed out, pushed around, over-policed, under-resourced. There's increasing political unrest. Recently, in a neighboring city just a few miles from her hometown, this guy, this, uh, I don't know, discontent. He put together a group of young men and took control of a government building in protest. Some people are calling him a terrorist. Some people say it's more like a kind of Robin Hood. Anyway, soldiers came, publicly executed. Anyone they claim supported him, hundreds, maybe thousands. Burned most of the city to the ground, took the children away to God knows where. This friend, she left home became a refugee, fled. She's basically homeless now. Did I mention she's pregnant? Yeah, not sure who the father is. But man, 
This young woman's faith runs deep. She's Jewish. I'll tell you, she knows the prophets almost by heart. In fact, she's named for one of them. First female prophet recorded in Scripture, Miriam. It means our rebellion fits. <laughs> no, but I guess you might know her by her nickname, Mary. Let me tell you a bit of her story. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. And now, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And then Mary said, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. And then the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Whenever we talk about Mary, it's important, I think, that we say a bit about socio-historic context. Of course, every line of Scripture has one, right? Every story in our most holy book, though we affirm it is the Word of God, comes to us filtered through human hearts and minds, was written down by particular people in a particular time, in a particular place, for a particular high-stakes purpose and then preserved and passed on, maybe for a different purpose. And of course, we all have our own context, our own hungers and needs and wounds and hopes, our own biases and agendas and social location, and all of this influences how we read, understand, and respond to Scripture. As sociologist Alvin Ward Gouldner famously observed, context is everything. But in the case of Mary, it's maybe doubly important to deal with her social location and historical context because, well, after all, she is the mother of our Lord, but also because when at last she finally accepts what the angel says and proactively consents to what God wants to do through her, 
She will lay claim to hope with the letting loose of this powerful, revolutionary song that will echo across the ages and around the world. But the hope she claims there won't be only for her. It won't be only the private and personal hope that comes sometimes to the long-suffering servants of God that buoys us through individual or familial troubles. It will be the hope of her whole people. Their destiny she will claim as her destiny. The child and the promise will not be only an answer to her prayers, but an answer to the prayers of her people. She can't claim this hope for herself until she, until she can claim it for and with her people. So if we want to understand and utilize this story, I think we need to know a bit about who she was, who her people may have been, and who they may be now. James Cone, important articulator of black liberation theology and my professor, is famous for saying in the 1960s that Jesus is black. He wasn't commenting primarily on Jesus' skin color, though Jesus was certainly not white. He was talking about race as a construct in a system of domination. He wrote, Jesus is black because Jesus was Jewish. In other words, Jesus' position as a Jewish person in the context of the Roman Empire then was akin to the position of a black person in American society at the time he was writing and today. Rome, you all know, took Judea as it had taken many lands, from modern-day Great Britain to modern-day Egypt, from modern-day Portugal to modern-day Turkey, the whole Mediterranean basin by force and coercion. It subjected people to slavery, stole their property, exploited them for their labor, and used the proceeds to amass enormous wealth and fund massive building projects. It sexualized and abused people, killed them without consequence, controlled their movement, policed them, displaced them, took from them their agency and bodily autonomy, and silenced their voices, and did this all while offering them peace and security under their benevolent rule and protection. Mary's people were the oppressed and the impoverished. And notice I don't say the poor as though the poor, as though poor was a naturally occurring, inevitable identity. Taking from my, my cue from Archbishop Oscar Romero of El Salvador, I say, impobrecido impoverished, made poor, because poverty is not something that people are. It is something that is done to people. Dr. Cohn says Jesus is black because Jesus was Jewish. Well, many of us grew up in churches which somewhere housed a portrait of Jesus done by Warner E. Salman in 1940. That famous painting portrays Jesus as a white man with long, flowing blonde hair and blue eyes who meets all the standards of Western beauty, uh, Western standards of beauty, staring off into what we can only imagine as a beautiful sunset. <laughs> Surfer Jesus. <laughs> Captain Amerijesus. 
But as one of my seminary colleagues once exclaimed, that ain't Jesus, that's some white dude in a bathrobe. <laughs> if Jesus was literally brown-skinned and symbolically black from a socio-historical perspective, then surely so was his mother. But that's only one dimension of her identity. An extraordinarily important one, I think, but not the only one. She's also young, probably a teenager in a society that didn't listen much to young people. She's also female in a patriarchal society. She likely had no access to formal education. She is Jewish and Palestinian, though that word wasn't used for another 150 years. She is pregnant and unmarried, and there are some indications in Scripture that she will raise Jesus as a single mom. Scripture records her in the Christmas story without a place to live and fleeing to Egypt, and so we remember her also as unhoused and a refugee. More clues about who her people were and are. And when at last Mary lets rip the Magnificat in response to Gabriel's message and Elizabeth's endorsement, she'll tell us more. She'll sing that raucous punk rock rebel anthem, God has looked with favor on the lowly state of his slave. God has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. Who else are Mary's people? The lowly, that's who. In Greek, tapenos. I have to tell you, I get so mad at translators sometimes. Like, what does that even mean? Lowly, who talks like that? <laughs> it's a word so spiritualized and vague that meaning has been all but wrung out of it for me. I think using humble misses the point too, in my view. Because look at the context. In my reading, the word means humiliated, thrown down, made low. God has looked with favor, that is, with partiality, at my humiliation, she sings. God has lifted up those who have been systematically thrown down into the dirt. More clues about who Mary's people were and are. We also know that someone named her for Miriam, the first female prophet recorded in Scripture, the fierce truth-teller who protected her, her baby brother Moses and later challenged his leadership, who led her people with Moses and Aaron out of slavery in Egypt through the wilderness. Someone named her Our Rebellion, and cast her as part of this larger and longer story, part of this long lineage of rebel prophet women, hell-bent, heaven-bent on freedom. These two are her people. Mary provokes us to ask, who are our people? Who is it without whose help we cannot lay claim to hope We made the decision this year to give our Christmas Eve offering to our partner, Missy, based in Oakland, 
who work to disrupt cycles of trauma and sexual violence and exploitation, to dismantle systemic racism, to move towards collective healing. Part of what uh, caused us to lift them out in this way, to remind you of our partnership with them, is that amongst all of our wonderful, wonderful partners, um, and the many, many worthy causes that we contribute to and participate in as a church, Missy is unique because they are led by black and brown women and gender expansive folks, people who have in many cases experienced directly the harm that they are seeking to undo. In short, uh, we have lift them up as our partner this year because they are Mary's people. And so they are ours. What if this whole complex identity that Mary holds and all of these people to whom she belongs are present with her, for her, and in her when she responds, how can this be since I am a virgin? I don't get the sense, based on the text, based on what she says next, that she's looking for a technical explanation of the mechanics of this thing. I don't think she's like, okay, but seriously, Gabe, how? <laughs> I want to see some diagrams. Uh, I think she's asking, how can it be me, of all people, holding all the identities and histories and hurts that I hold, belonging to all the people to whom I belong, how can it be me that God has chosen for this? Like every prophet before her and every prophet since, she has her doubts, but in this case, they might not be self-doubts. They might be world doubts. Like when we're accused of meddling too much in the affairs of our children and we tell them, I trust you, it's other people I don't trust. What if she knows who she is in some deep place in her heart in light of God's love? What if she knows her own value already? She was much perplexed and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. Why? What was so mysterious about this divine messenger's greeting? All he said was, greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Is it really so surprising that someone would call her favored by God? That God would be with her? But there was so much in the world around her to suggest otherwise. Like Zechariah last week, she wants evidence. What evidence? Where was the evidence for the angel's announcement? How can I know? Gustavo Gutierrez made famous the notion of God's preferential option for the poor, God's bias in Scripture and in history towards the impoverished and the oppressed, that God's most urgent commitment is to those who are closest to the hurt, the ones who are actively bleeding, the ones who, whose homes are actively burning, whose backs are against the wall, the idea that the gospel is good news for everyone, but it's not the same news for everyone. 
And for some of us, the good news is hard news. Hard news for the powerful brought down from their thrones and the rich who are sent away empty. But good news, because sometimes losing power and privilege can save the powerful. Because sometimes losing money and property can save the rich. Because sometimes we have to lose our lives to save them. And because sometimes hope comes for and from the people who are enduring the most suffering. Mary knows the prophets and the Psalms. Surely she knows the stories of Miriam and Moses, the exodus towards freedom. She knows of God's proclivity and penchant for choosing traumatized and frightened people, for choosing people whom history would never name as heroes or even main characters, the impoverished, the oppressed, the ordinary and unremarkable, the tragically flawed and underwhelmingly human, the least of these, the lowly, the humiliated, the throwaway people of every time and place and giving them the seats of honor and through them working miracles and through them bringing hope for all the people. She knows about what some have termed the downward mobility of God and maybe it's not herself that she doubts. After all, this is the woman who taught Jesus everything he knows, right? When much later Jesus stands in the temple and preaches his first sermon quoting Isaiah and saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because God has anointed me to bring good news to the poor and to let the oppressed go free. I bet you anything he was thinking of his mother who probably recited Isaiah to him as a bedtime story from the time he was small. Mary knows who God is. And yet Mary asks, how can this be? How can the promise of God be true? How can it be realized in the world, in my life, for my people, through me, given everything else that is also true? about the world around me and the circumstances in which I now find myself. How can this be? As if to say, yes, I know what God is promising, but how? God, give me a way to make this true. The angel persists with Mary, reiterates the promise, points her toward a partner in the struggle, her older cousin Elizabeth, and says again what Mary knows, I think, but needs to hear. Nothing will be impossible with God. And she responds, then, here I am. Let it be with me according to your word. It's not a resounding yes, not yet. It's not yes to the whole project of God, but it's a yes to the next right step. If it's true that, as 13th century German mystic Meister Eckhart once wrote, we are all meant to be mothers of God in our own times and places, then it is also true that we must ask with Mary, who are our people? Our people? 
who are the ones without whom we will never be able to access and claim hope in its fullness. How can this be? What must change for it to be so? How can we become midwives and mothers and co-workers with God in making true and visible what God has already ordained, already promised, already set into motion? Our calling is a great responsibility, but it is also a deep joy. Richard Rohr says, What a privilege it is to be asked by God to manifest or incarnate God's very presence on this earth. So God help us this season to meet God's messengers, to ask God and receive from God the hard questions, to claim the people closest to the hurt as our people and together with them to lay claim to the hope which Mary claimed and taught and which Jesus embodied. For nothing will be impossible with God. Amen.